Hey everybody, this is Tom Salami of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. It's great to have you here. We have a jam-packed episode a little later in the program. I'll be talking with Rocco Dibonartes. He's the global president of Otava at Johnson & Johnson MedTech. We'll hear the news that J&J released this week. Before that, Chris Newmark and I will talk with Karthik Bolasetti. He is a senior associate at Gilda Healthcare, and he recently did an analysis of GLP-1 drugs and what they mean to uh, Gilda's portfolio companies for the future of those companies and you know, for the future of MedTech. We'll talk a little bit about that. But before we begin this episode, I want to bring in our sponsor, Aptics. I'm speaking with Greg Tobin. He is the CEO. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here with you again. So we, we, we kind of know Aptics' story because you've been sponsoring podcasts under your previous name, Global Med MDI, but now you have the great new name, Aptics, which I, again, is, is one of those names that when I heard it, I couldn't believe it wasn't already being used because just it's uh, so simple to say, simple to spell, which I appreciate, no intercapitalization or anything like that. And it actually, I think it just really kind of it suggests action, which I think is very cool. So, talk, tell us a bit about the, the new name. I know the rebranding and the and the renaming can be uh, can be quite a process. Um, certainly, Tom, I'd I'd love to do that. Um, so, as you said, we named the company Aptics, and and the reason for that is it brings together the aptitude and excellence of more than a dozen companies, which, by the way, have a track record of you know more than seventy years helping customers solve their complex manufacturing challenges. We specialize in the areas of molding, extrusion, coatings, and assembly. And now under one company, we integrated our manufacturing processes and, and professionals across our global network from, from North America to China. And Greg, why did you think the rebranding was necessary? Well, it was, it was necessary for, for several reasons. Um, you know, as you know, last year, MDI was acquired by TrueArc Partners, a private equity firm focused on enabling transformative growth for middle market companies. Shortly thereafter, we acquired Global Med, a leader in extruded tubing for respiratory, anesthesia, and smoke evacuation applications. These were the first steps in our vision to build a new kind of global manufacturing company. And we also recognized that we needed a name and a brand that was as big as our vision and, and we concluded that, you know, rebranding was strategically important to bring that vision to life. And so we selected the name Aptics because it makes a, a bold statement about where we want to go. And, and also it allowed us to, you know, honor the legacy of the companies that preceded our involvement. I want to dig into the rebranding process. Uh, we'll hit that a little later in the podcast because I'm sure a lot of people listening, many startup entrepreneurs have uh, have wrestled with with names of naming processes of their own. So uh, I want to get some details on that. But folks, if you want to find out about Aptics more right now, before we get to later in the podcast, just go to their website. Aptics is spelled A P T Y X. So Aptics dot com. You can go there and uh, learn more about the company. But of course, we'll have uh, we'll have Greg Tobin back just a little bit later in this episode. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Well, Chris Newmark, how are you, sir? Doing well, Tom, doing well. 
Excellent to have you back on on the podcast once again. And we missed last week's podcast because uh, we had too much good stuff coming out of the Ice Talks West. Yeah. Julie Tyler interview and our Dave Rosa interview. So uh, we gave folks a break from this ridiculous routine that you and I have developed. And uh, but we're back. So <laughs> too bad back. for them. Yeah, too bad for them. But we, we brought reinforcements. Uh, happy to have on uh, our, our opening segment of the podcast, Karthik Bolasetti. He's a senior associate at Gilda Healthcare on the podcast. Karthik, welcome. Nice to meet you guys. Uh, great to be on the podcast. It's yeah, to, good to have you here. Great to have you. We, yeah, we nor- normally we, uh, we let the experts uh, exist at the end of the podcast when they can uh, be free from our, our, little, uh, our little nonsense, but uh, you were kind enough to, to want to jump into this fray. So we're, mm-hmm. we're happy you had the courage to do so. We'll spare yeah, the course. audience talk of snow on the ground in Minneapolis <laughs> or, or roasting got, pumpkins or whatever. You whatever. got three inches on Halloween, I hear. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, <laughs> All right, we'll was, move on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't get me started, Tom. Don't I get will. me started. No no pumpkin sausage talk. Either. We, we no, moved past that. No. We're into Thanksgiving. So, Karthik, That's right. uh, <laughs> tell us a bit about uh, a bit about yourself. You're, you're uh, a senior associate at Gilda Healthcare, as I said, a venture capital firm. Uh, how did you find your way into uh, into medtech venture capital investing? Uh, yeah, um, it's a fun story. Maybe not the most original. I mean, I think that like a lot of people in this space, uh, I started off as kind of a wannabe doctor. I was, you know, pre-med in college, um, had a lot of folks that worked in healthcare in my family, um, my, my, my father, my sister, and a lot of my extended family, um, and thought that that was a route that, you know, I would eventually explore too. You know, along the way, while I was in college, you know, while I was picking up a degree in biology, also uh, studied economics and finance as well. Um, and that, so that sort of uh, opened me up to the dark side a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, up taking um, an internship in investment banking my junior year of college, and uh, the world was never the same since. I, guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with a with a family full of doctors, do you ever go to like family gatherings, and they're just like, "Oh, he's just in investment banking." Like, does do you ever face that? No, I mean, well, I think when I was in investment banking, yes, because uh, people didn't really understand what investment banking was, and I mean, even now I look back and I was like, "Wait, what? What was that really?" <laughs> I mean, that's that's not yeah. That. Uh, but now that I'm in venture capital, I mean, I think it's it's super lively. I mean, people are so engaged in what I do um, just because I have a lot of uh, representation of different healthcare specialties in my family. So I can always talk to people about the deals that I'm looking at and the, the technologies. And it's it's really great to hear sort of real life boots on the ground perspectives on on how some of these technologies might be adopted. Uh, that's awesome. Then tell us a bit about, uh, about Gilda. How'd you end up uh, moving from investment banking to Gilda, and uh, tell us a bit about about the firm. It's it's a Boston firm. Or at least you folks are in Boston, so yeah. No, it's it's it was a little bit of a circuitous path, I think, to Gilda. So I mean, I've been at um, a few different venture capital firms since I left banking. Initially, I was at a firm called Longitude Capital, mm-hmm. um, and that was on train to the medical device space as well. Prior to that, had had really focused primarily on biopharma. Um, but yeah, I mean, loved my time at, at Longitude, really fell in love with the med tech space. Um, you know, I think I really, I, I think what really appealed to me about devices over biopharma was, you know, one, just the tangibility of a lot of these technologies. They're, they're things that you can really hold in your hand and, you know, see at a macroscopic level how they actually work. Um, and, you know, two, I think the ability to really bring these, these technologies to market um, in a much more sort of uh, expeditious pathway and, you know, really get to see the impact from start to finish. Um, but I met the, the folks at Gilda actually while I was at Longitude. We worked together on um, an investment in a company called Virgo. Um, so that's how I met our general partner, Jeff Pardo, and our other senior associate, Eddie Hanlon. And uh, we really hit it off. Um, and, you know, lo and behold, when, you know, Gilda was raising their sixth fund and looking to kind of build out their team, um, you know, the timing was kind of right. So I made the jump over. 
Excellent. Happy to meet you and Jeff. Well, I met you at, at Fenway at the, at a Goodwin event. I remember that. And then you you and Jeff were kind enough to buy me lunch in, in Boston. And Jeff's now host of the MedTech Talk podcast, which was the podcast I started probably almost 10 years ago now. So he's doing a great job of, of keeping that going. But uh, I remember at our lunch, we had the conversation about, uh, about GLP-1 drugs and, and how that was factoring into venture capital investing. And I hadn't really understood how VC firms would sort of build that into their investment model. So that sort of led, so folks know that led to, hey, let's get you on the podcast and, and talk it through. So uh, Chris, we've, Chris and I, and Chris has been sort of talking with the editorial team about what we've been hearing on sort of the the, the larger company levels. Uh, they, they seem to be going, and Chris, we can give a little more detail, but there seems to be sort of a mixed bag as to whether the presence of Wagovi and other weight loss drugs is going to help or hurt business. Obviously, it's helping people, which is great, but we're talking about we're talking about business, but, but yeah, I mean, we- we've been over at Mass Device. We've been increasingly covering, you know, the the potential effects of this new class of drugs on the medical device industry. But you know, we were just chatting before we started this recording. I mean, Karthik, you were you know saying that your firm's increasingly doing research on the area. I mean, I guess I guess this is start out. I mean, from your standpoint, I mean, how significant of an impact do you think these these drugs such as, you know, Wagovi, Ozempic, you know, potentially new drugs that are kind of come out in the future in this GLP class. I mean, how how much of an effect are they going to have on, on med tech and kind of this life sciences tech space in general? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. I mean, I definitely don't want to undersell the impact that these uh, therapies could have. I mean, the weight loss that some of these therapies are experience, that are, are demonstrating, such as Vigovi, which I think was, you know, 15% out to two years. And some of the newer generation therapies like um, Manjaro have, have shown even higher than that, something like 20%. Um, I mean, it's it's definitely astounding. And I think it's, you know, super great for patients. So definitely wanna, don't want to undersell it. Um I, I don't know. I mean, I think at the same time, you know, we're also mindful of some of the impediments to adoption here. I think, you know, not the least of which is sort of pricing and market access. Um, you know, these are pretty expensive therapies. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, average cost, I think, for, for Wegovy and, and, and Majaro is kind of in the range of, you know, $1,000 to $1,300 per month, um, sort of net of rebates. So the insurers I mean, really aren't covering them yet. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, from what I, yeah, from, you know, what our research can tell most, uh, you know, commercial payers and CMS are really only covering these for type two diabetes. Um, so commercial coverage to date for, um, for weight loss is, is, is quite limited and is likely to stay that way for some time. Um, just, you know, you know, when you zoom out, you know, there's, there's 70, 71 million Americans that are, you know, obese, right. And would, you know, in theory qualify for a weight loss therapy like this. Um, you know, when you do the math, you know, multiplying 70 million times, you know, a thousand to 1300 a month. I mean, you're, you, you basically kind of bankrupt, you know, the healthcare system. Mm, yeah. So, um, so something needs to change there. Right. Um, you know, maybe the pricing comes down. Um, I don't know if I necessarily see a mechanism for that just because, you know, there's only a few therapies that are on the market, maybe with increased competition that could change, or, you know, maybe with, you know, new legislation, you know, the government would have more negotiation power. But to me, that's, that's the fundamental constraint as to why, you know, it's hard for me to see what the current state of things is having a really monumental impact. I mean, they could go generic, but that, that'll take years and years and years and years down the road. I mean, so, you know, for now, they're going to be really expensive. I mean, so, so from your standpoint, the insurers aren't going to jump on covering these eventually because it, it seems economically eventually that could be a huge boon. If you could, if people could like really lose their weight, then there's all these other really expensive conditions that crop up around, you know, obesity that could 
you know, be greatly reduced. I mean, you know, thinking everything from heart disease to diabetes to. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. I mean, and I think it's interesting, like the, the tactics that these companies are sort of taking. So, I mean, one, one thing that I don't think a lot of people appreciate is that CMS is actually like forbidden from, from law, from actually covering weight loss medications. So oh, um, it would actually an act of Congress to, to, you know, revise, you know, how CMS you know, covers therapies to, to enable them to cover a weight loss therapy. So, I mean, what, what I think the strategy that a lot of these companies are taking is, you know, let's not even, you know, necessarily measure the weight loss in further studies. Let's measure impact on cardiovascular events or on, you know, progression of end-stage renal disease and other, and, and, and get those um, indications on label and, and have them covered for that. Um, so it's a bit of a loophole, you know, we'll see if that actually ends up you know, working for them. But, um, you know, one thing, I, I think that's one thing that really constrains things just because, you know, a lot of the patients that would be eligible are, you know, these are Medicare patients and Medicare can't cover weight loss therapies. Um, so that so would include Medicaid as, Medicaid as well? State Medicaid, Medicaid programs? I'm not sure of. I'd, I'd have to double okay. check on that. That's fine. Uh, but no, that's, yeah. mm-hmm. that's a really interesting point. So, and that and that is a that's something that I had missed. So, help us understand. I mean, this is a large macro issue, um, and it's always interesting when you talk to VCs who you're investing in a company, you're investing in a single technology, you're investing in a single executive team. Your 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 decisions are largely based upon this one sample uh, size, this one n n one. Um, when making your investments, but you also have to look at that single event within the larger world. H- how do macro events like the, the Wigovi and, and the, the advent of these drugs uh, and maybe other macro issues, how do you sort of build that into, into your investment model? Is it, is it something that, you know, is reviewed every year? I just, I actually want to get a nuts and bolts thing because we have a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to this. And I think it would be fascinating just to help them understand, you know, how VCs make these decisions. So how do you build macro events like this into an investment strategy? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in terms of the nuts and bolts of how it would work, you know, one of the sort of key attributes that we look at when evaluating new technology is, you know, what is the addressable market, right, for this technology? Mm-hmm. Um and so, you know, you know, when you model an addressable market for a particular indication, there's two components that you care about. Um, one is prevalence, you know, the number of patients that are currently out there that could be eligible for your therapy, and then also the incidence, right? So that's, you know, new patients every year. So that, that that's going to be a component of growth. And if you net out the incidence versus, you know, attrition just from, you know, mortality patients dying, then you, you can kind of understand what's the uh, um, underlying growth rate for that market, right? Um, so when you think of a, of a macro shock like this for, you know, the, 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 the GLP ones, right. You know, obesity is a, a driver of sort of incidence for a lot of these big, big, big disease categories, such as cardiovascular disease, or, you know, call it obstructive sleep apnea, orthopedics, whatever. Um, it's, it's really more of a contributor, right? So it's mm-hmm. not, you know, we, we don't see it really drastically altering the prevalence for a lot of these conditions, just because, you know, it takes a long time to, you know, get to the point, the, the you know, the point where you, you know, you're going to have a stroke or have a heart attack or whatever. It's not like you, you know, just take, um, you know, we go be in, you know, you automatically slash your risk. Um, so I, I would say that's kind of, it's, it's really more of a second order effect in terms of how large we think the market is going to grow, I would say, um, going forward. Um, and then, you know, you work backwards from that in terms of, you know, uh, if you have an addressable market at say 2030 or whatever your technology is going to come, come to market, um, you assume some kind of penetration rate off of that. Um, mm-hmm. so if you, if you think that the growth rate of the market is going to go down, then, 
you know, assuming penetration is constant, then, you know, the actual opportunity that's captured by this specific company is going to be lower. So th- I think that's kind of the nuts and bolts of how it would sort of impact, you know, our you know, revenue forecast for a company and, you know, ultimately you know, the sort of valuation that we put on it, if that makes sense. It's an interesting point you make in there that, you know, you're kind of looking a decade out because, I mean, that's kind of one of the interesting things about the device space is that, you know, like some of the major milestones could be could be a decade out, you know, because it takes a, a long time to develop a device and, and get it approved. So, so it kind of sounds like even though it could be years before we see effects, it's also going to be years before those devices get approved. So, so, it, so you're kind of gaming. Am I hearing that correctly? You're kind of gaming those, uh, those effects that into, into how you're evaluating, you know, the potential yeah. for. Yeah. yeah, it's it's really over the long term, just especially, I mean, the earlier stage you go with 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 these with some of these companies, um, you know, the more important the long term sort of implications of a of GLP-1 therapy is if it's a, you know, if we're looking at a company that might get to the market in like a year, you know, it's it's probably less important. But, you know, if it's a company that's you know, seven to eight years away from getting to market, then it's, it's pretty important. Have you done this sort of analysis before where something has been so kind of has such a long term holistic impact on healthcare that you've sort of had to go in and kind of apply it to all of your other metrics and see if some changes need to be made. Is this something that's routinely done at a venture capital firm or uh, a GLP ones? Is this sort of a, a, a thousand year storm or whatever kind of meteorological, meteorological <laughs> uh, metaphor we want to apply? So far for us, I think this has been sort of the first really macro shock from, you know, a sort of a, a pharma- pharmacological therapy coming yeah. to market. Um, I mean, maybe the closest analog would maybe be during COVID, right? You know, where mm-hmm. you know basically health systems were shut down, elective procedures kind of got got uh, got shut down for you know a, a moment of time, and so you know we did some kind of modeling there, um, at least in some of my prior firms, in terms of how that would impact commercial adoption. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's not like okay, like it's like every quarter we're going to review like what are the big macro events. It's more uh, responsive, I guess, if that if that makes sense. Great, and what? Uh... Can you just for a second, for a moment, just sort of explain what the what the process was was without getting too granular, and then we can get into uh, into sort of what what the findings were. But what exactly did you do to 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 um, incorporate GLP one and and the forecast of that into your investment strategy? So far, we've only really done this exercise for portfolio companies. We haven't really had an opportunity on on new deals to do this necessarily. Okay. But mm-hmm. um, at least for so for instance, for you know. Yeah. So, so uh, without without being too specific on the you know specific portfolio company, um, you know, so for one one company we did have that you know was in a category that I would say you know most people would say was kind of fairly squarely um, you know in the in the line of sights of GLP one in terms of obesity really being you know tightly linked um, to to as a risk factor for development of that of that disease factor. So I mean you know I think that the process that we did is one you know we looked at. Um, sort of, uh, you know, studies that have been published out there, um, sort of a meta-analysis, just trying to understand, you know, what is the quantitative impact of obesity as a risk factor in terms of developing this condition? Um, and then modeling out, so, okay, you know, there's this many patients with this condition today. If we assume X percent of them adopt GLP-1s um, and lose this much weight, you know, what does that do in terms of reducing the number of patients that would be eligible for this therapy? Um, but the interesting thing that you also have to think, had, had to think about with this was also the fact that you know, while, you know, some patients would drop out of eligibility because, you know, they would, you know, maybe be the, the condition would be resolved or they would no longer develop it. Um, you'd also have a pool of patients that 
could become become eligible for the therapy just because uh, for a lot of surgical procedures, um, you know, weight is kind of a contraindication. So if you lose weight, um, you actually become eligible. Um, so yeah, we're actually publishing a, a story on uh, M- a medical design outsourcing this week off of you know a, a talk with a striker executive, kind of making that that argument about um, you know orthopedic surgeries that you know that they'll actually have more. You know, my my first thought about this was like, oh, there'll be less people getting hip and knee surgeries because you know BC can contribute to you wearing out your joints, but they're saying like, oh, you know, more people losing weight, they'll have more people qualifying for those types of surgeries. Exactly. And I think it's not just orthopedics as well. I think it's 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 a, a, a wide range of procedure types. That's fascinating. I mean, you know, we've heard the, um, you know, the um, the CGM, you know, providers, the continuous glucose monitors, they're, they're making the argument that uh, we could, like, see more people using CGMs, you know, while they're on these drugs, because the CGMs could, you know, help them, you know, manage the whole weight loss process better i mean how much how much um stock do you place in that uh that argument i I tried not to do a dad joke and say how much weight do you place in that argument but um like what 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 do you what do you think about that i mean i actually think it's quite feasible um you know we've we've looked at some technologies in the diabetes space and talked to endocrinologists and that does seem to be holding water they are you know seeing kind of sustained and maybe even slight uptick in in, in utilization of cgms for their patients on glp1s so going back to your analysis, maybe I, I misunderstood. So you were looking primarily at portfolio companies, your existing investments that you have. But does that? I have to imagine that you've developed all this data, this this analysis. I have to imagine it's going to color, perhaps not completely change, but could be factored into investment decisions that you're making in the future. Absolutely, but I mean, I think it also depends on the area that you're looking at, Tom. Like. You know, when you step back, there's also tons of opportunity and really large, high growth medical device segments where I think GLP-1s will basically have no impact, right? Mm-hmm. Like, just to name a few, like urology, for instance, you know, that's really more tightly linked to age. It doesn't really have that much of a correlation to, to weight. Maybe prostate cancer does, but, you know, if it does, it's, it's very minimal. Um, so I think that's one category. Um, you know, behavioral health, neuromodulation, you know, maybe there's some link between, you know, obesity and, and chronic back pain, but... Uh, chronic low back pain, but you know, again, really more of a you know, a, a you know, uh, degenerative disease that's related to aging. Um, so, I mean, I think it's it's really more of a product of the, the deal flow that I've been looking at. Just you know, it's been in therapeutic areas that just frankly, I don't think are not touched by GLP ones. So, what you're saying is we're all doomed, and we should leave the med tech industry. That's that's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Am I mis- am I mishearing you? Unless we want to work on urology. <laughs> <laughs> No, I know. No. I, mean, I, think I know that's awesome. not what you said. <laughs> MedTech is doomed. I'm just writing that down best, right now. My <laughs> best Ken Brockman from The Simpsons. I, for one, yeah. welcome our ant overlords. Anyway, <laughs> so let's talk more broadly about, uh, well, I mean, is there anything else we need to know about uh, GLP-1s uh, and, and the impact on, on, on MedTech? I mean, I think that the, the only other thing is like, you know, we need to really like watch. I mean, I, I think that the situation is constantly developing and the yeah. long-term implications unclear. I mean, I think one thing to think about is, you know, the discontinuation rates for these therapies are are pretty high. Um, you know, I think last I saw for Ozempic, it's something like only one third of these patients are actually on the therapy after a year, out to two years. Um, and if, you know, for, you know, that that drug in particular, you know, if you discontinue the therapy, you regain most of your weight, something like two thirds of your weight, you'll gain back. You know, I think the thing that 
people are starting to pay attention to is the composition of that weight loss as well. You know, what, what, what we, what we do know for sure is that, you know, that, that initial weight loss, it's sort of, you know, both muscle and fat. So if you lose 15% of your body weight, that's, you know, not just your fat, but also your lean muscle. Um, I think the key question to watch is if patients discontinue this, these therapies and, and regain that weight, is that weight all fat or is that muscle? Um, because that could really dramatically alter their body composition um, and, you know, could end up uh, being a severe, severe uh, sort of drawback of these therapies. And then I think the other thing, but on the flip side of that, you know, there, there's just so much innovation and, and development going towards the space. Um, you know, I feel like every you know couple of weeks I'm seeing a, either a new study or a new drug in the pipeline. So just because, you know, the current therapies have limitations, it doesn't mean they're not necessarily going to be addressed by, by future iterations of these drugs. So just something that we're going to have to constantly watch and assess the impact of. Great. And uh, just zooming out a little bit more broadly about Gilda and, and venture capital, be a little more specific on the stage of companies you're investing at Gilda uh, in in outside of the impact of GLP ones. What what are what are some areas that uh, that have you intrigued going for other than perhaps urology? <laughs> <laughs> what do you do? You have something against urology, Tom? <laughs> I do not. No, no. I'm actually I'm very much in favor of urology, but although the yeah. conversations <laughs> always make me uncomfortable, I always drink a, end up drinking a lot more water after I have a a kidney stone conversation. But go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, for Gilda, I mean, we're not like, um, I, I would say we're not like thematically focused on particular therapeutic areas or types of technologies. I would say, you know, kind of one of the fundamental theses of our fund is, is better care at a lower cost. And so what we mean is, you know, technologies that have some kind of demonstrated ability, you know, have, have demonstrated through clinical studies, you know, some ability to kind of improve outcomes for patients, but at the same time, you know, are also reducing healthcare expenses by, you know, say, you know, reducing you know, necessity of, uh, of, of downstream treatment or, um, you know, preventing hospitalizations or things like that. So, you know, we, we, we look at both clinical utility, but also health economics. Um, so, so really anything that, that meets those categories, regardless of the, of the therapeutic area, is going to be something of interest to us. Are those types of technologies getting paid for more? Because I know that's just that's just been a, a challenge in the space, you know, for, for many years now. I think so. I mean, reimbursement is is probably one of the you know top things that we look at. And I think if you have a compelling health economics story to say to payers, you know, yes, you have to pay for our you know technology up front, but you know, we'll we'll generate cost savings for your you know pool of patients down the line. That's that's something that can definitely expedite expedite reimbursement. I just got an email. With the subject line, Massachusetts residents are the fifth most obsessed with Ozempic. So we're, <laughs> we're fifth most. Yeah. Nice. Residents of Connecticut are number one in case anyone was wondering. So <laughs> love these, uh, love these scientific, scientific studies that are in my junk folder. Um, well, so where's Minnesota? Is Minnesota up there? <laughs> I'll go take just... a look. Uh, final question. I mean, just more broadly about the venture capital realm. Uh, how are things looking uh, in terms of finding things to invest in, but more importantly, perhaps finding co-investors to invest in alongside. Yeah, I mean, things are looking bright for us, at least. I mean, I think we're, you know, regardless of what's going on macroeconomically, you know, innovators are still out there building really, you know, impactful, exciting technologies. So that that hasn't ceased. Um, and, you know, we're not one to really pay attention to kind of short-term economic fluctuations. You know, I think us, like a lot, you know, like a lot of other VC investors, we really take a long-term um, uh, uh, view. Um, in terms of syndication, I would say um, things are actually pretty positive as well. I mean, I think us and, you know, a number of the other investors that 
you know, typically co-invest with, um, you know, we're lucky enough to raise, you know, meaningful funds um, either immediately, you know, before sort of, uh, you know, this current round of economic tightening or even during. So um, I think that the investor syndicate um, ecosystem continues to be robust, at least in our view. Excellent. All right. Fantastic. Chris, anything else from you? I, well, I, I guess just, you know, maybe just to, to wrap it up. I mean, I know I know there's been a lot of, you know, uh, you know, I've heard a lot of talk that, you know, it was hard to get investments, you know, at least earlier this year with all the, you know, the economic uncertainty. Um, like, I mean, how much how much do you think that's improving now? Um, I mean, I think it depends. I mean, I think what we're seeing in general is that, you know, later stage companies that have, you know, I would say, you know, you know, pretty established sort of, you know, pathway to commercialization or already commercial and, you know, are showing, you know, good, good, good commercial adoption. I mean, there's no shortage of funding for those cups of companies. I mean, I do where, think where things have been struggling are, you know, maybe some of the earlier stage, more speculative investments. Um, so I think it's a bit of a tale of, of two cities. All right. Well, Karthik, thanks for uh, sort of the inside look on, on how VCs are, are viewing GLP one, and we always end these podcasts, you know, giving folks the uh, opportunity to connect with us on social media. Is there an effective way for someone listening to you to uh, maybe get on your radar screen without having a pitch to to send, but they just want to sort of follow you and, and connect? Um, I mean, I guess I'm on I'm on LinkedIn, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I could also I don't know if you could you want to share my email address. Happy to happy to drop that as well um, if that's helpful. Uh, that's up to you. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want to, yeah. So, I mean, my my email address is just my last name, Bolasetti at, at guildhealthcare.com. So, yeah, people can uh, feel free to reach out if they if they if they want to make make the connection. Great. All right, Karthik Bolasetti, thank you so much for uh, for joining us on Device Talks. Thanks both. Hope it, hope it, hope it was helpful. All right. Well, we're back with Greg Tobin, CEO again of Aptics, uh, a newly named company. Greg, we talked about why the rebranding was necessary a little earlier in this episode. Now let's talk a bit about the rebranding process. What went into finding this new name? Yeah, certainly, Tom. So, um, you know, as you would expect, we considered a, a lot of names and I don't mean just a handful. You know, we 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 evaluated hundreds. Was there a whiteboard involved? Did you have his <laughs> names upon names? You know, a, lots of whiteboards, uh, lots of, um, <laughs> you know, lots of iterative, uh, you know, strategy sessions. And, you know, so, so we started with a series of interviews involving stakeholders across a range of roles within the company. And of course, many of our customers. And as you and, and others know, um, you know, a brand is about so much more than simply a name or a logo. As our marketing leader frequently says, a brand is a promise. It's a promise of what we'll deliver to our customers, to our team members, and to other stakeholders. And a good brand is a promise kept. That's great. Yeah, I mean, this credo is, is critically important to us, delivering on our promises to, to our customers. We know that products our customers make absolutely matter and and that's why you know we do business with with straight straight talk speed and a commitment to quality we believe in a, a collaborative approach to complex manufacturing so we can support our customers and bringing more life-changing products to people who need them great and you mentioned your long history in, in manufacturing and, and all that you're able to do expand a bit on on that history and uh, how do you work with your, your MedTech customers? Yeah, definitely. So um, our, our history starts with molding. Um, it's a core strength. And because of the molding, there's, there's really you know, nearly nothing we can't do, whether it's injection molding, you know, dip molding, or blow molding. 
we, we opened operations in 1949 with the founding of SITES, that's S-E-I-T-Z, a leader in complex injection molding, and in particular, precision gears that drive modern applications in robotics, drug delivery, and, and other areas. And, and one of the keys to the success of this particular location is the in-house tool shop, where we design and build quick turn tooling. We, we were a pioneer in dip molding nearly 60 years ago when molded devices was founded, and we remain a leader today, having acquired you know, many companies along the way. We, um, you know, we also manufacture millions of feet of extruded medical tubing annually, which is um, a, a really big growth area for us. And for over 20 years, our dip tech systems business has been providing end-to-end coding solutions from application to automation, including the manufacturing of the automation equipment. And then I would say lastly, you know, we provide device assembly in a, in a range of geographies and environments ranging from white rooms to class seven and class eight clean rooms. And like, you know, most things, quality work really begins and ends with the people. And, you know, you're only as good as your, your talent and, and engineering expertise is at the core of everything we do. It's the heartbeat of the company. And as always, we love to end these podcast conversations with a, a look toward the future. What does the future hold for Aptics? Well, uh, Tom, I'll tell you, we are hyper, hyper focused on meeting the needs of our customers. We are financially strong. We are well capitalized and we are investing in infrastructure, technologies and capabilities to support growth, to better support our customers and their business. And when we say your products are our purpose, we mean it. And that's why making it happen is what we do. Fantastic. Well, Greg Tobin, thanks for sharing the, the rebranding process. And, and thanks, as always, for your, your support of Device Talks. It's great to have you as part of our, as part of our programming. Yeah, well, thank you, Tom. It's a real pleasure to, to uh, join you in these. And uh, uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. Fantastic. And again, folks, if you want to find out more about Aptics, uh, their website is, is easy to find, aptics.com, A-P-T-Y-X.com. Well, Rocco De Bernardes, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, it's uh, Wednesday the 8th. You had uh, exciting news this week uh, regarding Otava, which I want to get to into it in a moment. Uh, but uh, first, as always with these podcasts, we'd love to understand how our guests found their way into the medical device industry. Uh, what was the what was their first job in medtech and, and why did you choose to go that route? Thank you for the question, Tom. And uh, uh, let me tell you first, I, you know, I, I grew up in uh, in Switzerland, in a very special place of Switzerland, uh, in the south, uh, where Italian is being uh, spoken. And this is a very special place because uh, you have the best of Switzerland, the organization, the effectiveness, but also the Italian culture. <laughs> this is where I, where I grew up. It does sound uh, like a great and, marriage. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I had the opportunity to... Uh, go to university at ETH in Zurich. This is one of the the best engineering schools uh, in Europe, and I would say globally. This is where um, Albert Einstein went and uh, and taught uh, before he went to Berlin and then uh, to Princeton mm-hmm. in the US. Now over thirty Nobel laureates uh, coming out of that uh, school. So that that school really brought a lot of passion for engineering to me. I'm a mechanical engineer by by training. And uh, while I was looking for opportunities as an engineer, uh, I started in automotive 
what if? And then accidentally, as you know, most of us, I bumped into a, a very interesting company that uh, was interested in bringing new uh, med devices into the orthopedic space. And mm-hmm. I started there as an R&D engineer. And then, you know, 11 uh, cities later, uh, six countries later, three continents later, here I am still uh, in innovation, the innovation space for med tech. Uh, very passionate about it, uh, and most importantly, very passionate about the how technology is impacting healthcare patients around the world. That that combination of technology and healthcare is something that uh, I'm personally very passionate about. How different is it for an engineer to work on a product that you know is going to go into someone's body? You know, is going to be part of their lives and part of their 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 recovery. Uh, versus designing something that's going to go into a computer or be part of a car. I think this is what uh, makes MedTech so special. Uh, I think we all share the same passion, purpose, uh, and the sense of responsibility ultimately that uh, that uh, we have in this industry. Uh, ultimately, we all understand that our first duty uh, is to the patients, the surgeons, the doctors that are treating those patients. And this makes us, Johnson & Johnson, but also all companies that work in this space so special. And uh, uh, I wouldn't change this industry, industry for any other one in the in the world, uh, quite honestly. It's uh, so rewarding personally uh, to be part of such important ventures in the, in the technology, but most importantly, healthcare space. Hmm. And you, you seem, looking at your LinkedIn profile, you seem to you moved to be a business unit manager a few years after joining uh, you were with Synthes. Uh, what was it about the the move from pure engineering to more business operations? What was what was appealing about that, and and what was that transition like? Uh, that's a great question, Tom. And uh, I, I I think deep in my heart, I knew I wasn't you know I wasn't going to be a development engineer all my life. I wanted mm-hmm. to experience uh, something different, and uh, I was offered the opportunity. Uh, to basically take a product that I had helped develop uh, from basically the initial idea to the launch in the marketplace and bring it to a different region. I, I, oh, wow. I was offered the opportunity to move to Miami uh, and create basically a new, new regional office uh, to drive uh, the business in Latin America and bring the latest technologies that I had participated from an R&D standpoint uh, to develop into that region. So it was a very smooth transition for me mm-hmm. because I knew that technology was about learning the market, the the, the market needs, uh, the hospital systems around such as a diverse region. And so I, I think it was pretty natural uh, for me to do that. That's great. Was it, did you have, do you think, did you have the support? You obviously had the support you needed. Did you have a lot of support in sort of building out those skills you would need to build out a business? Again, going from engineering to that, they would seem to be two different skill yeah. sets or was there just a lot of trial and error in your part and you ultimately figured it out with support of some colleagues? No, I had great mentors and, and sponsors helping me. I had the opportunity also to to go back to school, do an MBA to complement my engineering background. Uh, a lot of learning on, on the job, of course, but it's just about curiosity, uh, being uh, agile in, in learning and, and be really truly interested to understand the needs of people that are working with you, and most important, most importantly, uh, the needs of uh, the patients that hospitals you're serving. So it's a 
comes pretty naturally from my perspective. You have that intellectual curiosity. And you moved from uh, Synthes to to J and J. Was that part of an acquisition? Were, were you part of the acquisition, yeah, or was it yeah, okay? Yeah, I, I joined J and J about eleven years ago as mm-hmm. part of uh, the acquisition uh, from uh, uh, J of Synthes uh, at that time, and I've been there since then. You know, multiple uh, multiple roles, uh, mostly managerial roles in strategy, leading smaller organization, bigger ones, uh, growth businesses, turnarounds. Um, a little bit of everything until I I was already, I was offered the opportunity to come back into the innovation space, mm-hmm. a closer circle to a certain extent uh, with uh, with Otava. And the interesting thing is that I was here in uh, in the Bay Area about 25 years ago as an engineer, and you know I'm, I'm closing the circle now, coming oh, back to the Bay Area uh, and uh, being part of this incredible program, which is which is Otava. Yeah, looking at your uh, your LinkedIn profile, you've endured some uh, some some difficult areas to live: Miami, Milan, Madrid. You've, yeah, you've, you've as really... I said, eleven eleven cities so far. Hopefully, <laughs> not many more <laughs> for the future. But uh, that's uh, that's definitely it, uh, there's been a huge uh, learning opportunity and journey, personal journey uh, for me. That's great. Well, let's let's get uh, get into present day. Present day, I want to learn more about Otava. Did, did you name Otava? Did you come up with the the Italian name no, for I, it? I, no, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't. Uh, I inherited it, but I, I love the name. It's a it's, good one. Uh, it's basically yeah. about uh, and it's associated with music, playing an octave higher. Uh, so we are we're excited about that. That's great. So introduce us to 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 the system um, briefly, and then I kind of want to get into the last two years because I think the last time we really I really saw Otava was there was a large presentation. I remember all the senior executives were there and that was sort of the, the big introduction. And then I haven't heard yeah. anything since, but, but first give us an introduction to the system. So the, the, the Otava system is a unique system as a one of a kind architecture, uh, as we call it, because ultimately it doesn't need any cards or booms to support the robotic arms. Uh, we have a unified architecture where the robotic arms are incorporated into the operating table. Uh, and this is uh, the first of, of its kind in the in the marketplace. And uh, we're very excited about it. Of course, we have a console behind which the surgeon is going to be teleoperating and maneuvering the arms and instruments inside the patient. Mm-hmm. And we have uh, as well a tower that uh, connects patient side with surgeon side uh, and really is, is the brain of the robotic system. And, and let's talk about the, the last two years. I think there's been a sense from the outside that we were going to hear more about Otava immediately and then things went sort of silent. Bring us up to speed on what's happened over the last couple of years with the development of Otava. So first of all, uh, I would say that we have grown the team uh, substantially. We're very excited with uh, the capabilities that were built uh, here in the Bay Area, as well as in Cincinnati, where historically we have been developing ethical instruments. So we're capitalizing on that very important uh, capability. Uh, we are creating a robotic hub uh, here in the in the in the Bay Area with uh, Monarch just uh, a few miles from here, uh, and the team doing incredible things there as well. Uh, so that has really been about you know the team, how we work together, uh, completing. Uh, the team making sure that we have the needed capabilities. The second one was really uh, continue engaging with uh, 
surgeons, uh, getting their feedback, making sure that uh, whatever architecture, robotic system we bring to market is responding to their unmet needs and is driving differentiation mm-hmm. in the in the marketplace. Uh, and you know we've been pretty silent. Uh, that's not a secret. You you mentioned that for a couple of years because we wanted to make sure that uh, uh, we come to a point where we're confident about you know where we're going, the timelines, and the value proposition that, that we intend to bring to the market. And uh, we've reached that point formally yesterday. Uh, and so we're very happy, very excited. Uh, the team is uh, is going to be celebrating today with all of, all of us because it's uh, it's an important milestone for us as an organization. Oh, I'm sure. No, I'm sure. So a, a lot to, uh, it's nice to get your story out there and, and to have at least people see what you've been working on. Let's talk about the state of, of, I'd love to understand what you learned from those surgeons over the last two years and the years prior, of course. Uh, it, you noted, I think in the release or out there, and it's, it's, common information that, that only 5% of surgeries are done using robots. I think sometimes we talk about surgical robotics and we talk about the players and who has a big lead and who's way behind, but we're still very early on in, in broader adoption of, of surgical robotic systems. Why Why hasn't, should should should, should uh, surgical robotic systems have been adopted more quickly? Is anything holding them back? Give us a, a state of sort of surgical robotics, where it is and where you think and where J&J thinks it needs to be. Yeah. So first of all, uh, you said it uh, very well, Tom. Uh, we're still early innings uh, in the in this market. Uh, if you think about it, 45% of uh, the procedures performed globally are still performed in an open fashion with uh, very large incisions. 55% are performed in a minimally invasive fashion, and of those 55%, 5% are performed robotically. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a it's still at the very beginning. Penetration in the U.S. is much larger. Uh, this is why we are starting here uh, in the U.S. Uh, we have declared that uh, yesterday as well. Uh, we don't. We are not bringing the robot to smaller market. We are going straight on in the most relevant market in robotics, and this is also uh, a sign of confidence. It's it's a it's of course it's a strategy. It's a it's a market opportunity that we see here in the U.S., but it's also a sign of confidence uh, that uh, uh, we believe we have a differentiated system that can compete effectively uh, in this uh, in this market. We also understand that uh, this program needs to be a global program very quickly. So we're looking at how we expand uh, beyond the US. So to your question uh, on why this is uh, not as penetrated, I think, you know, of course there are different reasons for this. I would say cost, perception of cost and, and value is one. Uh, the ability to train effectively surgeons is another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, moving surgeons from open procedures to robotic assisted procedures or laparoscopic procedures to robotic assisted procedures takes time. And we believe there is a huge and need and opportunity uh, from that perspective. Uh, we have established uh, through our JJ Institute uh, a new specialty uh, to address that specific need of training, accreditation, standards in uh, in robotics, and you know, just just for you to know, 150,000 surgeons are trained by Johnson Johnson Institutes every single year. So wow. this is what we do best, and I think uh, this is going to be a, a very important driver of uh, accelerated adoption. 
the last thing uh, that I would mention uh, is the fact that uh, today, uh, wherever there is a robot in a operating room, that creates challenges and complexities uh, for a hospital system from a scheduling standpoint. It's taking away uh, a lot of uh, very important real estate. And we know that in those operating rooms where a robot is being placed, typically there is a smaller throughput of procedures. Mm -hmm. uh, so we see an opportunity and hospitals uh, will recognize that there is an opportunity to improve that uh, access to uh, robotic systems, making sure that uh, you know patients that are waiting you know, to be treated can capitalize on operating rooms that are more efficient, uh, where workflows are simpler, where there is less need of dedicated personnel to use those robots and support surgeons in using those robots. And uh, Otava addresses a lot of this through its unified architecture, the simplicity and the flexibility that uh, it provides uh, from a workflow standpoint. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, the architecture of Otava. From what I understand from the reports and what I've heard previously, your design is different in that the, the surgical arms are underneath a surgical bed and can be brought out when necessary. Uh, give us a little more detail on that and why is that important? Uh, thank you, Tom. Uh, great question. So, yes, indeed, the arms are deployed underneath the table, are incorporated into the table uh, and are basically being deployed only when they're needed. Mm -hmm. This is what we call the invisible design. Uh, the arms are there when you need it, need them and are invisible when you don't. Uh, this gives you know different advantages uh, to uh, Otava and the users of Otava. First of all, the unified architecture creates more space, restores space in the OR for collaboration and movement. Uh, if you think, uh, even today, uh, robotic assisted procedures, there are one or two bedside assists that need to intervene uh, in, for critical steps uh, during the procedure while the surgeon is operating behind the console. So providing that ability to access the patient in a 360 degrees fashion mm -hmm. is important. The second element is what we call twin motion. Uh, because the arms and the table move together, this allows the patient to be moved during a procedure multiple times without interrupting the workflow. Uh, and that's also very, very important. And the last element is uh, not related to the architecture, but something that uh, is important to us is the fact that uh, we've been working with uh, our traditional Ethicon franchise, uh, our surgery franchise, mm -hmm. to bring uh, custom engineered instruments, Ethicon instruments on Otava so that uh, the trusted instruments that are driving performance uh, for surgeons in open laparoscopic procedures are available on Otava only. And this mm -hmm. is what surgeons that are using uh, Ethicon instruments uh, uh, are telling us. You know, they want us to provide their trusted instrumentation on, uh, on Otava. Interesting. So this may be a stupid question. Does J&J sell surgical beds already or is that someone else? And are you are you kind of moving into a new space by having a, a robotic system incorporated with a surgical bed? No, that's a, that's actually a, a great question, uh, uh, Tom. We don't sell uh, surgical beds. Uh, we have formed a collaboration with uh, Gettinger, uh, which is uh, one of the, I would say, one of the top two 
leaders in uh, in surgical tables, uh, and uh, we're working uh, with them uh, to continue innovating in the in in this space. Interesting. Okay, let's talk a bit about the the. Uh... You mentioned the the forty five percent of the surgeries are still done uh, in an open fashion, uh, in fifty five percent laparoscopically. Do you envision Atava? Are you going after that forty five percent to close that number, or are you going after the fifty five percent to to help more laparoscopic surgeries be done with a robotic surgical system, or is it a combination of both? It's a combination of both. Um, okay. Uh, of mm-hmm. course, we we understand that uh, in in certain procedures, think about. Uh, hernias, mental hernias, even in the US, uh, most of those procedures still performed in an open fashion, especially the most complex ones. So there are definitely opportunities uh, there, but we also understand that uh, there is a better way to do minimum invasive procedures. uh, And we see lots of benefits of uh, bringing uh, laparoscopic procedures to be performed robotically, uh, not only from a patient perspective, also from a surgeon perspective. Mm -hmm. Think about the ergonomics uh, and the advantages of uh, robotic assisted procedures sitting by an, behind the console. Now, we're very excited uh, because of the, the improved ergonomics that, that we feel we're going to be offering to surgeons to be able to ultimately extend their professional careers and make sure that uh, uh, we remove some of the mental and physical load that is associated with uh, laparoscopic procedures, but even today, uh, with uh, robotic assisted procedures. So let's talk about the, um, the 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 need of the surgeons. As we we've learned from time and time again, you can develop a very cool technology, and we've seen recently a company avail Med Systems that I thought had a great technology that could solve some problems. But surgeons are are not quick to adopt new tech unless it really helps them. I think immensely. So. We could talk about the therapeutic benefits to, to moving from open to, to laparoscopically and the, and, the, and the benefits you just talked about laparoscopically, but how else do you, what else do you think surgeons will find appealing about this? Uh, and, and I know you're not on the market yet, but can you talk about what how surgeons will benefit from having an Atava system in terms of their ability to perform procedures? So I talked about the one of a kind of architecture that, mm-hmm. uh, that we have some of the benefits uh, for surgeons and their teams in terms of accessibility, movement, collaboration, workflows around the patient. Uh, we we believe our system is going to be easy to set up. Uh, transition from surgery to surgery is going to be uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, we're going to need uh, you know less training for all our personnel to use to use the system. So these are all important benefits uh, that you know will drive new experiences in the OR. The second the second one I talked about is this element of twin motion, the ability to move the patient mm-hmm. during the procedure that increases flexibility for them in terms of how they want to perform the, the procedure. The arms can be deployed one by one, you know, all all, all of the four together. Uh, we are still testing the limits of the platform. We're excited about the opportunities and uh, that that platform might might provide, and uh, the more surgeons test it, the more they learn, the more they stretch the platform from that standpoint. And the last uh, element is uh, the, the fact that uh, we're going to be driving 
consistency of experiences and performance for them across surgical modalities. Mm-hmm. They might be performing laparoscopic procedures one day, robotic assisted procedure another day, open procedures in a different day. The fact that they're going to have that consistency through the ethical instrumentation is a very important element. Think about uh, stapling, uh, the stapling devices that we offer. We are market leader in, in stapling devices. And stapling is a is a very sensitive step, a very important step in a, in a procedure. This is where, for instance, in an oncologic procedure, a tumor is being removed and the alpha tissue need to be reconnected together. And the main concern by, by surgeons is, you know, how do I control postoperative complications? How do I control postoperative leakages? And mm-hmm. our stapling devices are the ones that have been trusted to ensure that that risk is being minimized. Having those staplers on Otava is going to be very important for them. Even today, even uh, surgeons are using robotic uh, assisted procedures or performing robotic assisted procedures. They choose to still use our manual staplers uh, for that specific step in the, mm-hmm. in the procedure. So that consistency across is going to be important. Interesting. And your your title also includes digital surgery. And I think I think somewhere along the line, we started calling surgical robotics, digital surgery, digital surgery, robotics. And it's kind of a, talk about the digital surgery element to this. Uh, are there advances? And in, in, I guess I see it as digital surgery is imaging, information flow, things like that. What sort of upgrades will we see in the digital surgery side? Um, and, and what kind of functionality will that give surgeons? That's, a, that's another great question. And of course, uh, you know, one of the the main issues that uh, we see, one of the main needs is that uh, we have today a lack of uh, access to data that are connected and providing insights. Uh, and Otava is going to be uh, digitally connected, you know, from day one, mm-hmm. part of our digital ecosystem is going to provide a dedicated digital experience um, with uh, with different uh, capabilities around uh, um, surgical uh, analytics uh, and focus on learning and, and, and training uh, to begin with. So we're very excited about that. But uh, to your point, we there is more to be done in this space. We're still early stages in robotics, but also early stages in uh, unlocking the power of data uh, to support uh, better treatment for patients around the world. And let's find final questions. Uh, just look at the future, um, specific future about Otava. You filed your IDE, clinical trials are next. What does that look like both in, in number of trials, number of participants, as much as you can share, locations, and how do you see, do you have a time frame that you're able to share as to when you'd like to get to a next stage? Uh, thank you, Tom. Uh, you know, we're so excited that uh, we're a- finally able to share more about our timelines. And uh, what we shared yesterday is that uh, it is our intention to uh, to submit a request to the FDA uh, to initiate uh, U.S. clinical trials in the second half of 2024. Beyond that, you know, we're not ready to to declare more at this stage. We're we're going to be running those clinical trials in the U.S. Uh, we have already some sites that uh, have committed uh, to support us in such a critical ende- endeavor. Uh, but definitely more to come on uh, on that front, and uh, it's going to be exciting for 
for us, for patients, for hospitals, and uh, we're looking forward to that important milestone. And final question about the future, uh, more broadly about about surgical robotics. Uh, during the, the the time you've been working on top and things have been quiet, you know, speculation begins to grow, and I'm sure I did my part in fostering it as to what what could a company like J and J do. You know, you've got size, you've got scope. You could acquire companies. There's a lot of startups out there trying to build companies. How does the future of developing J and J's surgical robotics portfolio look? Do you see them all? coming internally? Do you see acquisition maybe being part of it? You've got currently Velis and now you have Otava. As you grow out, uh, where do where do future systems likely come from? I would say, you know, we are extremely committed to our existing programs, Otava, mm -hmm. Monarch, Velis. You know, we have multiple outstanding programs uh, within JNJ. Some of them are already commercially available. Otava still in, in a preclinical phase. Uh, we we see lots of potential for those programs. As J and J, we continue being you know open, of course, in whatever uh, for whatever innovation is is available out there. There is a lot happening, and we're following the market like you very closely to understand what opportunities there might be. Uh, but I would say for the time being, uh, the, our mainstream programs are very well defined, and uh, we're excited about. Uh, their potential and uh, what's to come. Excellent. All right. Well, we appreciate the, uh, the update and uh, thanks for joining us on, on the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Really appreciate it. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the device talks weekly podcast. You can reach me on LinkedIn, Tom S A L E M I at device talks. You can find Chris Newmarker as in a Newmarker on LinkedIn as well. He is the executive editor of Life Sciences here at Mass Device. Of course, we would love you to like, follow, and or subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network. We have some new podcasts coming out next week. We're, we're sending out our first episode of AI Meets Life Science, brought to you by our managing editor, Kayleen Brown, and our pharma editor, Brian Bunce. They'll be talking to leaders in the life sciences space, medtech included, pharma also, to better understand how artificial intelligence will be impacting our industry. Very proud to launch the new AI Meets Life Sci podcast. And you can get that in all of our podcasts, including some more new ones that are coming out at the Device Talks Podcast Network. So please make sure you subscribe. Finally, check out devicetalks.com. We've got a special Device Talks Tuesday's episode brought to you next week by Infor. It's a it's a really great presentation. It's actually a replay of uh, a webinar we did on Mass Device, and uh, I wanted to bring it to our Device Talks Tuesday's community. So please do check that out. And uh, a little bit of alert: we'll be uh, opening registration for Device Talks Boston in December. So keep an ear out for that. That's happening on May first and second at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. All right. Well, that is all the Device Talks news I have for you. Thanks for joining us on this podcast episode. We'll have another Device Talks weekly podcast coming to you next week.